the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. The Wall Street Business Network presents Rob Black and Your Money, your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finances, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800 516 1220. So call in, we'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now, to start your day with the latest news and market commentary, here's Rob Black on the Wall Street Business Network. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Anything you want to talk about, we can talk about. Don't be shy. Um, stock market, economy. We could talk about Dracula dying. He's dead. He's gone. Not really Dracula, but the famous horror actor Christopher Lee, who played him, dead at age 93. Had a really long career. Uh, He did that fight scene with Yoda when he was 79 years old. Um, He was in a 1973 cult classic horror movie, The Wicker Man. He played Bond villain hero Francisco Scaramanga in The Man with the Golden Gun. Basically heart failure. 93 seems to be a good age to go, huh? Um, Anyway, Dracula is dead. I am Dracula, and I welcome you to my house. Thank you, Dracula. I will come over to your... No, 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 I'm not going to Dracula's house. Don't go in! Do not go in! Um... 1958. 1958. His first appearance as Dracula. Um, anyway, how time flies. Let's bring in CFP, Chad Burton. CFP, Chad Burton, New Focus Financial. NewFocusFinancial.com. If you want to drop him an email so that we read it on the air, Chad at NewFocusFinancial.com. Let's talk retirement portfolio construction. As a child, I loved construction. Building things up, tearing them down. What do we need to know about our portfolio construction in our golden years? Uh, well, you, you really have to start dealing with the retirement portfolio construction about 10 years in advance. Okay. Because what you don't want to have to do is say, oh, I'm retired. I'm now going to shift out of stock, sell all my stocks, and go bonds and cash. And by the way, it's 2009. Or it's 2001. So... Really what it becomes is try to accumulate all the equities in the beginning and dollar cost average into that. Be aggressive in your 20s, 30s, and even 40s. And then that way you can slowly accumulate the bonds and the the cash side of the portfolio 
later on. So your stocks sit there and continue to reinvest the dividends, compound, and accumulate. So then you end up with three years' worth of expenses and safe money, and then the rest in a nice balanced portfolio. So that's kind of the one of the main pillars of, of what the, the start is. Because if you have that expenses in cash, the three years' worth of a portfolio draws in cash, you can weather a bad market even if you start your retirement in a bad market. You're going to be okay. If we were having some day beverages, do a little day drinking, could I get you to, say, no bonds for portfolio under 50 and just accumulate these later? Well, yeah, especially on a you know, uh, period of rising interest rates. Yeah. However, there's some attractive areas of high yield and emerging market debt that you know have a nice 6 7% return. And really, we need to see revenue growth out of companies. Otherwise, we, we won't get that grand rotation from bonds to stocks. We need to see revenue growth. Not just central bank involvement. And we need to see it soon because there's so many good things happening, monetary policy, economic policy, and we're not getting that revenue growth yet. And if we don't get it soon, there's an economist that I was recently reading that said, we'll never get it. Well, that's why you you get these people that are out there saying, don't buy bonds at all. But you you still don't have just the, the pure revenue growth. We've got the bottom line growth that says exit those areas and create that grand rotation. And it's a global world, so you also have to have you know about 20% of your bond portfolio in international bonds as well. So there's always opportunities out there somewhere. Now, international bonds are different than emerging market bonds, right? Not necessarily. You want a good, flexible global manager okay. um, that can do some emerging market debt. You know, there's, there's emerging markets that have better balance sheets than we do. They don't have all the debt that the U.S. does. But there's currency issues you have to deal with. So the manager has to be good with bonds and with currencies and be able to hedge that. Okay, I think I'm on to all this. What else do we need to know as far as portfolio construction? And maybe some deconstruction. When do you start selling some, if it's like overpriced, not overpriced, but if it's had a big move, do you deconstruct your retirement portfolio and and construct some of the the unpopular areas? Yeah, I mean, the the easiest way to do it is you have your cash. You've calculated very carefully your, your annual portfolio draw. At the end of each quarter, you know you're spending your cash. And at the end of each quarter, if you have a positive quarter... If you've spent $20,000 of cash and you got $40,000 of gains in your portfolio, sell 20 of that gains. Yes, that means you pay taxes. Replenish the cash. Pull the winnings off the table. It's as simple as that. It's it's really a, a monitoring situation. Um, if you have a negative market quarter, you just rebalance inside the portfolio. The income that we get from Social Security, and again, you and I have this argument that it may not even be available to you and I, but let's say mom's getting $20,000 a year of income. Do we look at that as... Like $400,000 of no. securities? No, a lot of people ask that. Or they say, is my pension make up for my bond allocation? Okay. It really doesn't. The way the calculation works is that, let's say you calculate your taxes, healthcare costs, and everything else, and that number is you know, 150000 and you're getting 30 from Social Security and 20 from a pension. That means you've, uh, of your 150000 50000 is covered by by guaranteed income sources. Any chance So there's 100,000 left over that you're going to have to draw from your portfolio. So you need 3 years worth of that. So pension, social security, dependable rental income reduces the amount of cash you should have on hand. It doesn't reduce the amount of bonds necessarily. Any chance you and I get to retirement in 10, 20, 30, 40 years and everything you said is just crap and you have to change it? Well, we've had to change things anyways because the 4% draw rate rules were created in the 90s when bonds were paying 6%. So we've had to go into bond alternatives. Um, and and other assets to help maintain, because the only way you get more than that is you take more risk. Well, if you're taking more risk, you need to have a backup guarantee 
um, that says, well, if things fall apart, you're still going to get income from the age of 80 on. So you have to look at bond alternatives today to, to maintain the, the same 4 to 5% draw rate that people could start when they were in there in the 1990s. Anything at your website that you want to plug, anything you want to push? Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the construction and, and even the deconstruction, the rebalancing process, you can watch a webinar at newfocusfinancial.com. It's newfocusfinancial.com. It's Chad Burton. You can email him, chad, at newfocusfinancial.com. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. You know, when you're talking about money and issues tied towards money, one of the areas that we have to you know, be honest about is seniors. And there's things like elder financial abuse. And there's a lot of suggestions out there like secure all your valuables in a bank safety deposit box, you know, social security cards, passports, credit card, account numbers, other legal documents, financial statements, and medical records. That doesn't sound realistic to me. There's some financial advice that just doesn't sound realistic. To put my mom's credit card in a safe deposit box? Nah. Uh, a safe in the house, maybe. Sure. But going, let's go to the bank. Uh, I don't get, it just doesn't seem realistic. Uh, there's advice for preventing elder financial abuse, like don't give you out your personal information, such as bank account numbers or PIN numbers to anyone on a phone call, letter, email, fax, or text. That sounds great, but try to get a woman, try to get my mom, who's got a little dementia, a little Alzheimer's disease, 80 years old, try to get her to shut up. If anyone on the planet's willing to talk to her, she's like, oh, let me tell you everything about my life. Um, so some of the advice on, you know, preventing elder financial abuse, it's difficult. Um, and it's, some of it's just crazy outdated, crazy outdated. Um, anyway, I just throw that out there for you. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial. Next up, I'm going to go through all the news that you need to use and how, how it implements into your concepts of investing and the economy. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Black talking money, investing, and more. As I've told you before, this is my favorite segment of the show because I get to kind of encapsulate everything. LA hit $15 an hour minimum wage. It's going to go into effect over the next basically five years. Um, you're going to see San Francisco and Seattle follow. They're very progressive cities, all things considered. I'm surprised that LA was able to you know, beat everyone to the punch there. Um, labor costs will become a bigger part of some businesses. Some businesses will decide, hey, I'm going to invest in more technology and replace some of the labor. So some of the unintended consequences will will be felt. Some of them will help the economy, uh, but some of will be felt in labor cuts. Consumers finally opened up their wallet in May as retail sales bounced back from a disappointing stretch 
again, for the last couple of years, we've seen January, February, March as pretty weak periods because it's been cold in the United States, arctically cold. Uh, so this isn't a big surprise, and it's good news for the economy. Costco is a huge threat in the car dealership business. They're offering a huge perk, low fixed prices, uh, sometimes $4,000 below suggested manufacturer retail. That's a pretty good deal. Nike won the deal to outfit the NBA. I almost say, why? Why spend a billion dollars over seven years or eight years? Doesn't it feel like Nike <laughs> outfits the NBA? But they'll go to the players and they'll say, hey, what, what cool things can we make for you that you know we'll see you warming up in? And if, you know, if it's good enough for LeBron to wear in warm-up, then some kids around high school will say, yeah, it's good enough for me. Netflix shares hit an all-time high today. Potential stock split coming. Shareholders voted to increase the number of shares offered. They've got 60.6 .6 million shares outstanding. Um, so people like stock splits. I was more impressed with what they did with uh, Marriott Hotels. Um, basically, TVs that have net-connected TVs they're going to start offering, you know, Netflix in hotels. So you may not have Netflix, but you can try a 30-day trial while you're there. That's smart. On top of it, you could punch in your own Netflix account, and if you're, you know, binge-watching House of Cards while you're on a, you know, work trip, you can watch it on a big screen versus your small screen. And uh, I like it. I like it a lot. The FDA has backed uh, Amgen's cholesterol-lowering drug called Repatha. That'll generate billions of dollars in sales. Whole Foods is in their streamlined chain 365. I hate this. Um, Wall Street likes higher price stores, not lower price stores. Wall Street likes the elitism that is Whole Foods and not the, the cheapness that is Trader Joe's. Um, just from a Wall Street perspective. From a personal perspective, I love it. I don't... <coughs> oh, sorry. Um, I don't like the concept name of 365. But it's okay. Facebook is sending out free Bluetooth beacon devices to U.S. businesses that request one. So starting on uh, Monday next week, you know, once a business sets up a beacon, it can detect whether when a Facebook user on a smartphone is w is within set distance. You know, a set distance. Um, you know, you can run, but you can't hide from Facebook and from knowledge of what advertisers want on you. Rupert Murdoch is stepping down at 21st Century Fox. His One of his sons is going to take over as CEO. The other son is going to take over as a co-chairman of the company, uh, along with dad. That's success or failure starts at top. Um, that's the business lesson there. Sidewalk Labs, a startup created by Google, has some bold new aims of trying to improve city living. I read an article yesterday um, that talked about how San Francisco has really, really embraced technology. Uh, a lot of cities have it, but the founders describe Sidewalk Labs as an urban innovation company that will pursue technologies to cut pollution, curb energy use, streamline transportation, reduce the cost of city living. So they're going to be building technology specifically for cities. Um, I think that's obviously positive. Uh, J. Crew, uh, Mickey Drexler, is a guru in the world of style. He's not hitting it out of the ballpark right now with J. Crew. In G. Crew, uh, big Drexler, think Capri pants. You know, he's had some big hits in the world of fashion. Um, he's been raising prices while others. And he's been raising prices while other retailers have been cutting prices. H&M, Zara, cheap fashion, fast fashion. 
J. Crew ex- making things more expensive. Plus, they've totally missed out on the athleisure, um, the yoga pants as weekend wear lines of clothes that Lululemon and Taylor and Old Navy have all introduced well, but not J. Crew. Let's go to a caller. We've got Chad. What's on your mind, Chad? Hi, I'm Chad. Chad, I think I can Hello? hear you breathing. What's up? Hi, uh, quick question on the uh, social justification for lower tax rate for capital gain until more than a year. I understand when a uh, company goes public, the money that's uh, put into their stock goes for creating jobs and productive wealth for the economy. But once the stock's out in the stock market and a consumer uh, B buys a uh, thousand shares and then sells it a year later, and let's say there's a gain, what's the benefit to society on uh, that person only paying 20% on the uh, gain on the stock when basically none of the money goes for any kind of productive resources or capacity in the uh, in the economy. I've never quite understood what the justification was for uh, investors getting a break on uh, long-term capital gains. What would you, what tax rate would you like for them to pay? Well, I, I'm not arguing either way. I'm just kind of curious. Obviously, that benefits people that own uh, stocks, real estate, et cetera. But it doesn't really do anything. Usually you have laws that uh, in an economy to incentivize growth, productivity, you know, more jobs, et cetera. But when you're dealing with a piece of paper that's already funded a company that started, you know, and employed people, and now it's just on the secondary market, I don't understand the value to society about taxing someone less for a gain on that paper note just because they held it for an additional year. Okay. Maybe there's also a flip argument, and I guess we're just talking and not really trying to solve any numbers. Maybe there's also a flip argument that, you know, short term, you're encouraging people to take more risks so they get more reward for sure, but they also get taxed higher if they they pull out their capital within a set amount of time on the short term versus long term. I'm not a big fan of short term capital gains taxes, and just to make this argument even more insane, and some people have no idea what we're talking about, and thanks for the call. Um, I don't talk taxes a lot on this show, but California's got, you know, they tax capital gains as income tax, and some states do and some states don't, and you throw in, you know, um, what state's better to die in with an estate tax versus what state's not better to die in, and there's things that just make no sense. Um, again, the fact that California has different capital gains tax treatments than Oregon or New York it it doesn't our tax system is so screwed in this country i think 20% isn't a bad capital gains rate tax you know it's been as high in the past as 35 38% um some states some countries have much higher some countries have much lower getting people to throw their money into stocks i, I don't think is a bad thing it gives the company you know the ability to access capital um it's a way of setting up another income in the world for yourself another business if you have patience to set it up, but a lot of people just don't know what they're doing and taxes just make it boggling. I'm Rob Black.
I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial money, investing more. No secret that I like to talk technology. Joining me now, Chris Siatia with thestreet.com, tech editor. How are you, Chris? Good, Rob. Thanks for having me back. You're welcome. Um, let's talk a little bit about the developers conference that happened basically earlier this week. Uh, give us some of the headlines. Give us some of the things that you uh, saw out there. Well, the major headlines uh, from WWDC were largely as expected. Yeah, the unveiling of iOS 9, the unveiling of the new version of Mac OS X, nicknamed El Capitan, which I thought was kind of interesting and funny. Um, yeah, the unveiling of Apple Music, which everyone was expecting. Rewards are coming to Apple Pay. And the unveiling of a new watch OS, watch OS 2, which again, you know, was largely as expected. So it was pretty much, you know, a, a mundane uh, WWDC, with the exception of maybe having Drake on stage, which kind of got people excited, and then the concert at the end. But it was largely as expected, and I expect things to, to really start to pick up for Apple in terms of, you know, groundbreaking announcements probably later um, in the next couple of months, probably starting with September with the next iPhone. Were you a little disappointed that no TV product was announced? Because a lot of people were thinking they were going to slip it in. The keynote ran over two hours, um, so I'm I'm glad they didn't announce a new TV product because we were sitting there for two hours, and then when you factor in wait time, it was a, it was a long day. But no, I wasn't really surprised. You know, we'd reported that they've been in talks with Disney, um, and Disney and Apple are haggling over how or over what Disney content to include in the new streaming service. And it didn't really make sense to have a new TV, a hardware TV, without a new streaming service to back it up. Um, so it doesn't make sense for Apple to really include that. Maybe they in, in WWDC. Maybe they give it its own event later this year. Or maybe they they back it in with the iPad or, or iPhone um, when those are announced. But you know that wasn't something that was surprising to me. What was surprising out of everything that you saw? What was the the headlines that you're like, ooh, I want some of that? I think probably the most interesting thing from my perspective is just how useful people actually realize that Siri has become. Uh, on the keynote, they said that Siri is now fielding over a billion requests a week, and the error rate on Siri is down to around 5%. So uh, couple that with the new proactive features where Siri basically can predict what you want, uh, whether it's you know app usage or you know making suggestions or telling you to leave early for a meeting or, or things of that nature. I think you know that was probably the most interesting thing that I saw um, out of WWDC, especially because you've seen Google move into the predictive search game with Google Now uh, on tap. Yahoo has hinted that it wants to get into this space. So I think that was something that was really interesting and maybe isn't going to move the revenue needle for Apple, but I think it will make iPhone users that even that much more stickier than they already are. Anything um, with the watch, the operating system, I didn't really report on that. Was there anything missing there that I should know of? If you like using the watch, um, 
which uh, quite a few people obviously do, the the two big announcements from my perspective were the fact that they're starting to move away from the watch as an iPhone accessory. They're going to have native apps be available for the watch so that you're basically not just using, you know, slimmed down version of the iPhone apps. And the other thing is, is I mean, this is kind of, you know, a little um, nerdy, but you can actually now reply to emails on your watch with actual words instead of either, you know, a preset uh, emoji or a preset yes or no or thank you response. Uh, so it's nice to see that, you know, if you're going to be doing things with a watch uh, away from the iPhone, you know, obviously email is one thing that probably all of us have an abundance of in our lives. So if we're going to, if it makes our lives easier to not use the iPhone for email responses, then that's something that I think will help sales of the watch. Anything else on the WWDC event for Apple that you think we need to hit on? The other thing that I think probably is um, just from Apple's perspective and its partner perspective is the amount of areas Apple announced that it's entering into space and into competition with. They touched on Apple Music, which obviously goes up against Spotify and Pandora and radio and other streaming services. They built their own news app, which basically puts, I don't want to say the the final nail in the coffin for Flipboard, but it certainly doesn't help things. You know, they talked about predictive search like we talked about. So that's one area where Google is going into. And then they're kidding on privacy. You know, they they firmly believe that your data is your data and it's not anybody else's to be made money off of. So that really goes up against what Google and Facebook believe because, you know, they're both generally advertising-centric businesses. So it's kind of pitting Google and Facebook almost against Apple in this you know, war against for privacy and your data and, and ha- whether to make money off of it or not. So it'll be interesting to see where that battle develops over the next 18 to 24 months. I've heard that like Facebook doesn't really share your data. They just promise advertisers that, yeah, if you want a 35-year-old guy who goes skiing and also has a monkey, we'll deliver an ad to that person versus sharing it. Does that change the debate? Like, does it make it almost as if Apple's being less than genuine? You know, I've seen some people say that, you know, uh, that Apple isn't being entirely genuine as it relates to this. But Apple keeps a lot of things close to the vest, so it's, it's hard to know what they're being genuine on and what they're not being totally truthful on. Um, I suspect that, you know, there's a little bit more to this than meets the eye because they do have all this amount of data on you. So I don't think that they would ever turn it into a, a, a way to monetize, but whether they do something with it um, or not, you know, remains to be seen. And whether as Facebook is actually monetizing incremental data or whether you're being bundled into a a demographic. I think Facebook probably is, um, you know, looking at stuff that's so granular because I I see ads that follow me around. um, And these, I feel like, are are specific only to me um, because of what I'm searching for. So I would not be shocked if Facebook is 
going so granular that it's looking at your profile page and things that you like and and you know other areas of that sort of spectrum and you know kind of monetizing it that way it is kind of crazy isn't it that you could look for a grill a weber grill and then for the next like 60 days every time you're on facebook there's a weber grill in the advertisements and you're like, did I do that on Facebook? You're like, no, I searched for it on Google, and somehow Facebook got that out of Google or got it out of the browser and put it in their Facebook. It's, it's, it freaks me out at times how, how well they know me. Yeah, it's, it's creepy. I mean, sometimes, I, you know, I was recently writing a story on Sling TV, yeah. and I was doing some searches on Sling, and I wasn't trying to buy Sling, but there were five or six different ads over the past couple of weeks on Sling TV on my Facebook feed, and you're right, it's just it's 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 scary sometimes um, how much they know about you. And this is what comes back to Apple and Tim Cook's point that your data is your data, and we're not ever going to make money off of it. We don't want to make money off it. We don't want to know that stuff about you. Um, they feel that it's very private. It's yours, and you know it's it's this big this big war between in, in, that's brewing in Silicon Valley. Product companies like Apple versus advertising generic-centric companies like Facebook and Google, and we'll ultimately see how this plays out. You also did another piece. I'm speaking with tech editor Chris Siaccio with TheStreet.com. You did another article on Intel pushing diversity, investing $125 million in four businesses. That's not chump change. Tell me a little bit more about that. No, it's not. I mean, even though Intel is the world's largest semiconductor company, uh, an investment of $125 million in four businesses is a substantial amount, especially because, you know, that's becoming a really big issue in Silicon Valley diversity. Apple's talked about it. You, you saw a couple of female executives on stage at WWDC. Google has talked about that they had female and minority executives on stage at their developer conference. Facebook has talked adamantly about this. Sheryl Sandberg is a one of the key, or if not the key, proponent of diversity in Silicon Valley. So Intel is just, you know, putting its own stamp on it. In January, they announced that they would be putting forth $300 million to invest um, in diversity. And the CEO, Brian Krasanich, has said, you know, it's not just enough to actually go out and hire these people, but you have to actually do a little bit more, and that's where Intel um, is making this more statement is by actually investing in these types of companies. Thanks for joining me. It's Chris Iaccia, street editor with, not street editor, tech editor with street.com. Where's my head today? I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. You can find him online, again, at thestreet.com. A lot of good tech articles, a lot of good business articles, and a lot of good investing articles at thestreet.com.
I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial money, investing, and more. Anything you want to talk about, we can talk about. There's so many reasons to believe credit card companies will continue to charge ahead as far as stocks go. I like MasterCard, I like Capital One, I like Visa. I take a look at them all. As long-term investments, I think they make sense. Consumers can still feel you know, the sting of the debt from the Great Recession, but that doesn't stop us from swiping our cards. Revolving credit, reflecting mostly credit card debt, climbed at an annual 11.5% rate in April. That's the second largest increase since 2009, September. It's part of a larger trend that's been playing out for decades. Both Visa and MasterCard have seen purchase volume on credit cards soar over 100% since 2000. U.S. is number one when it comes to credit card usage, but international growth is very brisk. Global non-cash payments grew by 9.4% in 2013, led by a 22% increase in developing markets. I was sitting here today. I use a double cash rewards, which basically gets me 2% City MasterCard. And I use Barclay Card, the Arrival Plus, which basically gives me 400 free traveling dollars just for signing up. But 2% of all my purchases also go towards points that tie uh, that are dollars. So that's pretty attractive in my mind. Uh, plus, if you use those points to purchase airfare or a hotel, they give you 10% of the points back. It's a pretty good perk for a guy who uses his credit cards extensively, but I pay them off monthly. <clears throat> so I don't get hit with that you know, 18 to 20% annual percentage rate. Non-cash transactions are expected to rise to a total of $800 billion over the next decade. Um, oh, I was going to say this. Um, during the show, it turns out that someone stole my credit card, and I got a call from Citibank, and they said, did you do these purchases? I'm like, nope. It's all taken care of. I love credit cards because it shows me my budget really smartly. With cash, you're like, yeah, I took $200 out. Where did I put that? Restaurants? Groceries? Um, Capital One, I think, is inexpensive. It focuses on the domestic market. If you watch commercials during any sporting event, you'll see a lot of Capital One. Um, It's trading about 10 times next year's earnings. Trades about one times book. Um, The economy is robust. People are paying their credit. Um, I think you can make a case for it right now at these prices. I don't think the market seems to appreciate their potential. They're levered to consumer credit quality and growth and to U.S. loan growth, particularly the domestic card portfolio. It's underestimated. Um, Earning estimates are too low. The company's upbeat first quarter earnings report in April. Um, They deliver better than expected earnings. Valuation should continue to grow up. If you think the stock market's too expensive, then you say, let's look for some value and a forward PE of 10 times earnings, it's pretty good. Is it perfect? There's no way it's perfect. Um, Now, I think to be fair, um, like Visa a couple years ago spun off Visa Europe. They wish that they didn't. They're trying to buy it back now. and Visa trying to buy back Visa Europe could force Visa to raise prices, which would be a positive for MasterCard, um, giving them more pricing flexibility than you know they had before. Again, I still like Visa, but I really like MasterCard, and I really like um, Capital One. Uh, 
So earnings are going to grow for MasterCard about 20% and 18% for 2016, 2017. So it's in the top five rankings of the largest public companies. It's also a big holding historically outperforming the five-star Janus Balance Fund. I don't usually come out and be so bold as to give you stock pick ideas, but here's one, here's three. You know, the concern is starting to be maybe Apple. Fears that the rise in mobile payments would allow for a disruptive new entrant to the payment world seem unfounded, basically, though, because Apple Pay turned the tech giant into a partner rather than a rival. MasterCard and Visa remain at the forefront of the market, even as mobile payments grow exponentially. So to be sure, neither stock is risk-proof. Both need the global economy to keep expanding for domestic and international consumers. If you want more of an international play, I think uh, right now it's MasterCard. If you want more of a domestic play right now, it's Capital One. Um, you know, I don't think government mandates or regulation will ever truly go away, and those are some things plaguing uh, credit card companies. But you now have what I want you to know from what I'm looking at. Um, new company, Google's launching something called Sidewalk Labs. And what's important to know about this is anytime you get a private partnership with public utilities or public cities, um, it's a good thing. Uh, whether it's helping with bike sharing programs, with technology, um, but ambitious private sector initiatives from publicly traded companies I think are great. IBM and Cisco are famous for it. IBM is, you know, help researchers with traffic management. Uh, weather forecasting on a, you know, a micro level has helped, you know, save lives from mudslides in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, we don't know how much Google's going to invest in what's being called Google Labs, Sidewalk Labs, um, but it's, it's separate from Google. And uh, I think ambitious projects like that are, should be rewarded um, with applause and with, you know, appreciation. I know it's easy to hate some of these publicly traded companies, and we had a caller call in a little bit earlier about capital gains rates. And uh, maybe this is one of the things that he's missing because he doesn't really think, I don't know what he thinks. Several EU officials are urging for quicker solutions to the Greek conundrum. Um, European Council President Tusk says decisions needed at next week's Eurogroup meeting. So we should get something soon. IMF spokesperson Jerry Rice, not that Jerry Rice, but Jerry Rice, says institutions are well away from an agreement with Greece. Retail sales surpassed expectations. You can find me online at robblack.com. That's robblack.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.